Hello, everyone, and welcome to the SOP Radio Network Health and Wellness Show. Today is Friday, June the 16th, 2017. I'm your host, Tiffany, and joining me from our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have Adam. Hello. William. Howdy, everyone. Jonathan. Hello. Doug. Hello. And we have a very special guest in our health and wellness studio today. Uh, our topic is going to be high-intensity strength training. We have Drew Bay here in the studio with us. Drew Bay hey. is a personal trainer. He's been a personal trainer since 1993, and his website is called bay.com. That's B-A-Y-E.com. And he shares his expertise on high-intensity strength training and body weight high-intensity training. He's the author of several books, uh, Project Kratos Program Handbook, High Intensity Workouts, High Intensity, Getting Ripped, and Time Static Contraction Training. So if you want to optimize your workout and get the best out of it and build your strength and muscle mass, you are listening to the right show. Welcome to the show, Drew. (laughs) Well, thanks. Uh, Glad to be here. Just to get us started, can you give us a bit about your background, how you came to get into weightlifting and strength training? Did you start as a 99-pound weakling, or what's your story? Uh, not, I wasn't quite that, uh, that bad. Um, I started working out, actually, when I was about 11 years old, uh, just doing bodyweight exercises, you know, you know, basic stuff, push-ups, chin-ups, squats, crunches, things like that to try and get stronger for martial arts. And later, I was about 13, 14, started working out with some uh, friends of mine in one of my friend's basements. Uh, his older brothers had weight equipment, and, and we would train on that. Didn't really know what we were doing, but uh, we were enthusiastic. Uh, fortunately, uh, we got a little bit of progress with that, and none of us got injured too badly. Uh, later in high school, uh, got a little bit more serious about strength training, wanted to get a little bigger, uh, for football, and uh, unfortunately, got a lot of bad advice from coaches, a lot of bad advice from uh, your typical bodybuilding and, and fitness magazines, and uh, progress was not what what I would have hoped it would have been. Um, so for the longest time, uh, I weighed maybe about 140 to 150 pounds, uh, which I'm not very tall. I'm barely 5'8". So it wasn't like I was a stick or anything, but it wasn't as muscular as I would have liked to have been. In college, I started reading some of the other muscle magazines and came across Mike Menser's column in Iron Man at the time, where he was talking about high-intensity training. Mike had been a competitive bodybuilder back in the 70s, uh, he uh, most famously uh, competed against Arnold Schwarzenegger in the 1980 Mr. Olympia, where uh, uh, it was it was fixed. Uh, Schwarzenegger was far from the best person on stage that day. Uh, Menser wasn't the best either. Uh, Boyer Co. probably should have won it, but uh, he got frustrated with that quit. I won't go too much into Mike's background, but uh, he spent a lot of time uh, at Nautilus, learning from uh, Nautilus inventor Arthur Jones, who 
is the person who is probably most responsible for revolutionizing the fitness industry back in the 70s and introducing a lot of these high-intensity training uh, concepts and principles. So I started learning about this stuff from Mike and applying it. And after years of being stuck and having a difficult time getting my body weight past 150, I was able to get up to 180 pounds. Uh, the heaviest I remember weighing in about that time was about 183, while actually getting leaner. And this was over about a six-month period. And it was just following these principles, increasing the intensity of my training, backing off significantly on the volume and frequency, and paying more attention to getting adequate recovery in between. And so as I was doing this, as you can imagine, it's a pretty rapid a change in somebody's body, people started to ask me what I was doing. And I started training a few friends and other people asked if I was, you know, saw this and asked if uh, I was available for training. I started charging people and eventually decided instead of just doing this uh, freelance to go get a job doing it and started working at a Gold's Gym in Green Bay. And it was, it just worked out perfectly because the owner was a phone client of Mike Menser's, and they were using a high-intensity training program. At the time, they were using the super slow protocol, uh, Ken Hutchins' uh, version of uh, high-intensity training, which incorporates a very, very slow speed of movement. But they're also consulting with Mike. And so at that time, you know, I got really into the whole super slow thing and decided... I was going to take a break from school. I was uh, going to University of Wisconsin Green Bay at the time for biology and went down to Florida to work with Ken Hutchins. I figured out and might as well you know, learn uh, right from the source. And through Ken, was fortunate to meet the, some of the other people that had uh, been responsible for all the progress made earlier on at Nautilus. Uh, Ellington Darden, who was their director of research, uh, Jim Flanagan, who eventually introduced me to uh, the Nautilus inventor, Arthur Jones. So it was a, a series of very fortunate uh, uh, events that allowed me to learn from and work with some of these experts. And over the years, I've incorporated that, uh, learning also from the experience with all the people that I've trained and uh, come to some of my own conclusions about uh, the best way to go about this. Well, it sounds like you got hooked up with all the right people. I recognize a lot of those names. Can you tell us what is high-intensity training? Yeah, in a nutshell, high-intensity training is a philosophy of training rather than a specific program or method uh, based on you know, pretty much best evidence shows that the results that you get from exercise are proportional to the level of effort put into it. And if the effort is high enough, there's going to be a greater stress on the body that it has to recover from before producing the adaptation stimulated by the workout. So if you have a very high intensity of effort, then to avoid overstressing the body, you need to keep the workouts relatively brief. Now, the workout doesn't directly produce any improvements in fitness. A workout doesn't increase your strength. A workout doesn't improve your cardiovascular efficiency or any of the other things. All the workout does is send a message to your body that your body needs to do those things. 
And for it to do that, it has to have adequate time between workouts to recover and adapt. So high intensity training is training with a very high level of effort, but keeping your workouts brief enough that you don't overstress the body and allowing your body enough time between workouts to be able to recover from the stress of the workout and produce the adaptations stimulated by it. Now, it's very important to look at it as a philosophy or a set of principles instead of a program because while these principles are universal, the best application of the principles can vary considerably between individuals depending on their genetics and their body's response to exercise, uh, their goals, as well as practical considerations, um, how they are able to effectively fit the workouts into their lifestyle. Hmm. So it's, it's not a program. It's not a specific, you do this workout and you do these exercises and you do them exactly this way, this often. It is a flexible set of principles, uh, sort of a, a recipe for an individual to determine which exercises, how often, how they should do them. That's and a much better way Oh, Sorry, go uh, ahead, Adam. Okay. Well, uh, I was just going to say that, you know, that's a, I like the way that you keep emphasizing that it's a philosophy, not a prescription. Um, because I was, you know, I've been reading your site since 2011. And when I first came across high intensity, I was thinking about it in terms of, you know, a prescribed regimen. And so, you know, it was one set to failure and, and that was it. But um, like you said, there is that, that genetic component where everybody's a little bit different. And so, uh, it's, you know, taking how, taking that philosophy and then applying it to different people can, can really vary considerably. So I think that's, a, that's a good thing to emphasize. And I'm glad you emphasized it because it, it can be something that people can be, you know, such as myself who take it a little bit too far. Yeah, it's, it's extremely important because the pro there's no single program that is going to work best for everybody. And even worse the people whose programs people tend to copy are the worst people for them to copy. In most areas, if you want to be successful, it makes sense to look at other people who have been successful and to study how they got there. Um, but with exercise, a lot of the times it's very misleading because with how much variability there is between individuals, you've got some people who naturally build muscle, and get very fit very quickly, regardless of what they do. They are genetically gifted. They're fast responders. And often, these are the people that other people are looking at and saying, you know what, I want to look like them. I want to be able to perform like them without considering that a large part of their success was not the way they trained. In fact, sometimes it's in spite of the way they train because they have such great genetics. And uh, it's, it's a matter of looking at the particular individual and how they got there and just considering their method while failing to ask whether or not there might be some unique circumstances or some unique traits that allowed them to succeed with that method. Because mm -hmm. for the majority of people to try to follow the workouts of elite athletes and bodybuilders who are often genetically gifted, they're fast responders, they're naturally stronger, more enduring, more durable than most people, and often 
you know, taking performance enhancing drugs. Uh, for the average person to try and copy that would be a recipe for disaster. They would quickly overtrain and in most cases also injure themselves. Um, so it, it has to be a set of principles instead of a program because there is no single program that is going to work best for everybody. You could come up with something that was average that would work best for most of the people, but even an average program wouldn't look like the programs that you know, elite athletes or you know, drug-using competitive bodybuilders would use. Now, those programs that they're following, whether or not you know, they call them high-intensity training or not, if a program works at all, it is because it is incorporating certain basic principles. Exercise has to be intense. It has to be demanding. If it's not demanding, you're not going to stimulate your body to produce any kind of uh, meaningful adaptive response. It has to be done progressively. As you get stronger and better conditioned, you have to increase the difficulty to stimulate further improvement, further adaptations. The volume has to be enough and it has to be, you know, you have to have all of the major muscle groups addressed. You can't ignore anything. And you have to do enough for all of them that you are sending a message to your body that it has to improve. But it can't be so much that you are using resources, that you are stressing the body so much that it doesn't have enough left over after recovery to be able to also produce the adaptations. And it has to be frequent enough that you don't allow for uh, any uh, loss of strength or deconditioning, but not so frequent that you prevent your body from having enough time to fully recover and produce the adaptations. Now, all of these things are going to vary between individuals, and you will have some people who are just very responsive. They handle a higher volume of exercise very well. They can do more. They can do it more often and they will still be able to effectively recover and adapt. And you've got other people on the other end of the spectrum that have to cut way back on the volume and frequency where they end up just uh, overtraining very quickly or even losing strength. Uh, Drew, for, um, for people who are beginners, and it sounds like you, you do a lot of work with beginners, um, is this something where you just you really need a professional to help you out and to learn how to do this correctly, or is this something like say someone can't afford you know classes or a membership at a gym or something like that? What would you recommend as a as a first step? Like you should do X before you do anything else. Oh boy! Uh, first off, nobody needs a professional, but it does help a lot. The problem sure. is there are very few professionals. In some bigger cities, you can't turn around and throw a stone in any direction without hitting a personal trainer or somebody calling themselves one. Most of them have absolutely no idea what they're doing. And the average person is often better off figuring this stuff out with good information that they can get online than going to a typical personal trainer who is going to terribly misinform them. Hmm. That being said... For the average person starting out, I would recommend a little more volume and frequency than what I would recommend for somebody who has been doing it for a while. And the reason for this is there is an inverse relationship between intensity of exercise and how much a person can do. Most people are not going to train very intensely at first, and they shouldn't be trying to. 
when you're starting out, the focus should be on learning to perform the exercises correctly, on getting better at doing the exercises, at becoming more skilled at exercise, rather than trying to do it as hard as possible. Doing it right is more important than doing it hard, especially when starting out, because you want to make sure that you don't set yourself up for injuries down the line. So I would have somebody start out with more moderate weights, with more frequent workouts, and then gradually increase the weight they use while focusing primarily on form. And then when they get to a point where they are consistently achieving momentary muscle failure on most of their exercises, that's when I would have them start looking at you know, how they're progressing over you know, a few weeks' time and determining whether or not they need a reduction in volume or frequency to work out. Now, I'm curious. Fascinating. Sorry, go ahead, please. The, uh, on your website, you've got a great page where you talk about your philosophy of exercise. And I thought it was pretty important for people who have trouble getting themselves motivated to, to do exercise because it is such a intense uh, uh, activity to do in your life. And you had a good paragraph that I'd like to quote. Uh, Proper exercise is a requirement for living the longest, happiest uh, life possible. It is a requirement for self-actualization, realizing your full human potential and necessary for achieving the ideal of a sound mind in a sound body. I thought that was a, that was a pretty good statement to make. And um, I thought maybe you could go a little bit into your philosophy and how you can get people to be motivated to do uh, exercise. Oh, well, that, that actually it sums it up pretty well. But uh, to expand on that, uh, first off, most people don't exercise. Even the very small percentage of people who think they're exercising aren't actually doing exercise. Uh, there is this mentality, uh, this belief that anything that involves movement that is relatively demanding is somehow exercise. People, you know, you ask them, well, do you exercise? And they might say, well, you know, I garden or I go cycling or uh, I swim a couple times a week. And these things aren't exercise. Uh, so first off, I need to be very specific about what I mean when I say exercise, because none of these other activities even come close in the effect that they'll have. And the reason it's important to distinguish between the two is that if I tell somebody exercise is extremely important, you need to be doing this. And they think that they're getting exercise by walking around the block a few times a week, then they're, they're missing out. Exercise is not any kind of activity that involves movement and effort. Exercise is a very specific activity. Exercise is a process that involves working the muscles against meaningful resistance. It has to be difficult enough when you're contracting that you're stimulating an adaptive response. It has to be done in a way that does this efficiently. Specific movements are going to load the muscles more efficiently than random locomotor activities like cycling or, or swimming or running. Uh, so you take something like a squat, a properly performed squat, is designed to effectively load the muscles of the hips and thighs. Running 
doesn't. It's a really poor way of doing anything uh, for fitness. Some people might enjoy it, and if they want to do it for that reason, that's that's great. But running is a horrible way to get in shape, whether you're trying to improve your cardiovascular, metabolic conditioning, or lose weight or, or whatever. So exercise has to be done in a way that efficiently loads the muscles. It needs to be done in a way that is in accordance with specific muscle and joint function. You can't be copying uh, some activity from daily living and say, well, I'm going to take this movement and I'm going to add weight to it and make it an exercise because most of those movements are not efficient ways of loading and working these target muscles. So also it has to be something that has balanced work for all the major muscle groups. And when you're designing a strength training program, you can say, okay, these are all the muscle groups we need to work. We've got this exercise and that exercise. Do we have every muscle group covered? Whereas if you're doing something like you know, playing racquetball or football or whatever, yeah, it's hard physical work, but it's not an efficient way to work all of your muscles in a balanced way. So when I'm talking about exercise, the only thing that I'm talking about is a proper strength training program. In fact, strength training isn't even the best way to put it. I would say, you know, progressive resistance exercise. That encompasses a little bit more, but even that's redundant because by its definition, if you're doing exercise, you should be exercising in a progressive manner. In fact, uh, strength training, when it's done correctly, is the most effective way to improve all of the other factors of fitness. A lot of times people think, well, I'm going to exercise. I got to do this for strength and I got to do that for my cardiovascular conditioning. I got to do that for my flexibility. But in most cases, if a person is strength training very high level of intensity, if they're limiting their rest between exercises, uh, they're going to have as much improvement in cardiovascular and metabolic conditioning, if not more than if they were to spend even more time doing traditional endurance activities. Um, it's not unusual for uh, us to have people, uh, men in their 40s and 50s, getting their heart rates up you know, 140, 150 or more on average, sometimes with peaks of about 170, 180, doing these high-intensity workouts if they're moving quickly between exercises. Uh, more effective than if they were to go for a jog or go cycling or, or any of these things. Um, so it's, uh, so when I say exercise, very, very specific activity. And the reason that this is so important is because your ability to do anything from the most basic activities of daily living to, you know, sporting and demanding physical recreational activities depends on your level of physical fitness and health. And while the two aren't directly related, they do have a significant impact on each other. And this is, it becomes especially important as people get older. Most people, like I said before, don't exercise. And even most of them who think they're exercising are not exercising. And if you don't exercise properly, if you don't maintain your muscle mass, uh, or if you exercise improperly and you cause yourself degenerative joint conditions or injuries that limit your mobility later on, then with that decline in muscle mass and inability is going to come all sorts of other physical problems. Most of the problems associated with aging, including problems with your skeletal system, problems with your cardiovascular system, are 
caused by a gradual reduction in muscle mass. I recently spent some time observing physical therapists in a nursing home, and uh, they generally divide a lot of the patients into two categories. You've got your ortho and your neuro. Uh, you, your neuro, your neurological condition with an increase. You know, if you get somebody who's got a stroke, somebody who's got uh, MS or something like that, where the nervous system isn't uh, operational, it's, it's a little bit harder for them to do things to maintain the muscle mass. But if you've got a lot of these people who are just physically weak, or have orthopedic uh, injuries, there are ways to work around that. There are ways that they could have prevented a lot of this. Um, a lot of these people, I'm going off track a little bit, but a lot of the people I saw in that nursing home did not need to be there. And what I mean by that is if they had taken better care of themselves earlier on, if they maintained their muscles, if they maintained their cardiovascular and skeletal systems, they would be able to take care of themselves without needing somebody else to do that for them. A uh, good example, my uh, maternal grandmother started working out back in the 70s when you know, Nautilus was uh, the big thing. And she continued to do that for a long time. And she actually, she was in very, very good physical shape. Um, unfortunately, uh, she had Alzheimer's and gradually you know, became more and more confused and got to the point where although she was in great physical shape, um, she really, you know, she got to the point where she didn't even know what was going on or who she was anymore, or who any of us were. But uh, she ended up living into her 90s. And despite being that old, and even after a long time without strength training, the effect of it was that she was still so mobile that they had to put an ankle bracelet on her at the home to prevent her from, because she, before this, she would frequently get out and they would have somebody call and say they'd found her halfway across town. So <laughs> she was able, yeah, she had no problem getting around and doing all this stuff because she took good care of it. Diet was also a part of it. She, she ate really well, but um, she strength trained and the strength that she built up was able to carry her through that. Consider that, and this is another thing, the average person, and I'm not even talking about the people who are at the elite level. Some people can increase their strength to a level that is almost unbelievable. Mm. These are rare, but there are people, you know, if you hear you know, tall tales and folk tales and, and legends, but people like uh, Paul Bunyan, people like you know, Heracles, Samson and whatnot, chances are that this was based on some of these rare genetic freaks who had the potential for an almost, again, an almost unbelievable amount of strength. People like that exist. They're very rare. But most people grossly underestimate how strong they could be with proper strength training. The average person walking around that does not exercise properly is a weakling compared to their potential. And consider that if that's where they're starting, they can't afford to lose that much. So if they do no strength training, that's where they're starting and they're just going downhill as they get older. Even if they were to only strength train for a decade or two and get way, way up in strength and conditioning, they're starting at a higher point. So even if they do stop and they do decline, they're still going to be way better off than if they've never strength trained at all. But here's the catch. It's not enough that you train hard and you train progressively and you 
to a volume and frequency that's appropriate for how your body recovers and adapts. You have to do it in a way that you don't wreck your body in the process because you don't want to put all this effort into stimulating improvements in strength and cardiovascular conditioning and functional ability only to cause all these injuries in the process that cripple you down the line. And so it's, it's not enough that a strength training program be effective for stimulating these improvements. You also have to take into account that you don't want to wreck your body in the long term because it is possible to do this very effectively for strength, but get all these injuries and then still end up you know, being in bad condition later on because you can't move as well as you ought to be able to. So it's, it's extremely important if you value your long-term health, if you value your independence and your freedom, um, but even short-term, in the short-term, how strong you are, how well-conditioned you are, directly affects what you can do physically. And as an adult, you have a responsibility to be able to care for yourself. And this includes all the typical daily activities that you might encounter, but also emergency situations. If something happens and you require a certain amount of physical strength or endurance to be able to resolve or escape from an emergency situation and you can't because you never bothered to build that ability, well, you have neglected your responsibility to do so. Um, weaklings are less useful to themselves and other people. Even worse, if you are a weakling in an emergency situation, it's bad enough that you can't help yourself. You then increase the work that other people need to do to prevent you from being harmed in that situation or to you know, get you to safety. So it's not enough that you just do it for you know long-term health and fitness, but also so that you can handle as much of what life throws at you on a regular basis. And looking at it another way, just from the standpoint of self-confidence and uh, social interaction, the better your physical condition, right or wrong, the more physically attractive you're going to be, and that is going to affect almost every interaction you have. Uh, Whether people agree with it or not, People who are more attractive are treated better. They're going to be generally more. It's true. And you're going to be more successful in all sorts of areas. Anywhere there's social interaction, attractiveness plays a role. Go to a store. Go to a mall. Just watch people. Watch what happens when a frumpy, unattractive person walks into a store. Watch how the salespeople react to them. And then watch what happens when a really well-built, attractive person walks into the store and the difference in the attention that they will get. It's right or wrong. It is the way things are. If you want to be not just physically more capable and healthier and feel better, but if you also want to be more successful in any kind of interaction with other people, you should try to look your best. And it, it amazes me. A friend of mine recently made a comment about now he, he's got a lot of friends that are really into cars. And these are people who spend an insane amount of money on classic cars and refurbishing them and making them look incredible. 
And a lot of them are in absolutely horrible physical condition. They take care of these cars, but they don't take care of their own bodies. And I see the same with clothes. I see people who are just sloppy fat and out of shape, or they're skinny. They look like a stiff wind would blow them over, and they're spending all this time shopping and accessorizing. They might put, you know, they might get hundred something dollar haircuts and might be wearing $500 shoes or whatever, but they absolutely look like shit. I don't know if you got censored with the radio. There. But here's the thing. You can't cover that up. If you, are, if you are fat and sloppy or if you are scrawny and have poor posture, then no matter what you're wearing, it's, you're, you're still going to look like crap. You're not fooling anybody. And I told him I would rather drive an absolute junker, the worst car imaginable, and still be in great physical shape than have a Lamborghini and look like some of these people. People need to focus on their health. They need to focus on their physical capabilities. They need to focus on their appearance if they want to live the best possible lives. And the most effective way to do that is with a proper strength training program. Well, and diet, of course, comes in there too. But but from a physical activity standpoint, they've got to strength train. Yeah, I think, you know, as you were saying, like the the other benefits to exercise aside from just being stronger – um, you know, we've talked on the show about, um, you know, willpower and, and doing things that your body doesn't necessarily like, like, you know, uh, cold adaptation, taking cold showers and stuff like that. I think exercise fits right in there as another way that you can build your willpower. And, um, you know, that can have, uh, other effects in your life, uh, be it self uh, it makes, makes people less of a pussy. Uh, most people go out of their way to avoid being uncomfortable, mm-hmm. and it makes them weak as a result. Strength training is one of the ways. Obviously, you know, cold water adaptation, there's, there's other things. But strength training is one of the ways that people can do that. You should regularly attempt things that are hard for you. If you don't, then when you are forced to do something hard, you are not going to be as well prepared for it physically or mentally. Mm-hmm. Um, Without going too much off topic, an, an interesting uh, thing I read, there was a study that was done on feral children. And one of the things that they found was that they seemed very insensitive to changes in temperature. If it was extremely cold or extremely hot, they didn't seem to be as bothered by it. Now somebody gets hot and they're complaining about the heat. Oh, there's no air conditioning. Or somebody's chilly, they want to get indoors as soon as possible. But these feral children barely responded to it just because they had been in situations where that was just that was how it was. They acclimated to it. People who regularly do hard things are going to steal their will. They're going to be better at handling things when it happens by you know chance, when it's not their choice. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's definitely one of the things that you can do that's effective for that purpose. Yeah, it's not just a physical preparation for the hard times that might come, but it's also a mental and kind of a spiritual preparation as well. Yeah, uh, when done correctly, it is at least as mentally demanding as it is physically demanding because you are going against every instinct you have. If you're exercising correctly, um, and it varies, obviously pain sensitivity and tolerance varies between individuals, but Some people are going to experience a tremendous amount of burning in the muscles, 
you're going to have elevated heart rate, you're going to be breathing pretty heavy. All of these things are extremely uncomfortable um, if you're training hard enough. And most people stop when exercise starts to get hard instead of working through that to the point where it's not just hard, but it's physically impossible to continue in good form. Regularly doing that will acclimate you, will, will get you better accustomed to dealing with physical discomfort and working through it in other activities. Mm. But that takes, it takes a bit of mental effort to be able to do that because uh, most people just want to stop when they get to that point. Yeah, just as a, a point of reference for like my own uh, experience, you know, I I prefer to use uh, weight machines just because I like uh, not having to worry about, you know, um, using a free weight for a squat. But uh, for me on a leg press, I have to keep it at the very last as the very last exercise that I do because it's so physically demanding and you know, like you said, it, when, when you get to that point, it starts to get really uncomfortable, but you know, you pay attention to your form and you know, like, okay, you know, my knee's not in physical pain. It's just, my body's like, oh my God, this is so much work. Make it stop, make <laughs> it stop. And so that you have to develop that resilience to keep pushing through it and to finally reach that failure. And then, and then you're on the floor for five minutes. <laughs> yeah. Well, part of it is also understanding the difference between informative and non-informative pain. Uh, normally, pain is your body's way of saying, stop doing this. And your body doesn't want you doing the strength training either because it's very disruptive uh, to homeostasis. It's going to cause some microscopic tears in your muscle. It does a bunch of stuff that your body doesn't want to happen. So your body's saying, stop doing this. But it's not the same as pain that says, okay, something is damaged, something is tearing or breaking or revulsing or whatnot. And this is also part of the reason I like to start people more moderate and have them gradually increase their intensity and then throw, throw it at them all at once because you learn the difference. And when you're doing the exercise, you know if you are doing it correctly and if you don't have any pre-existing injuries that if you start to feel something other than that muscle burning, other than that normal, you know, heart rate elevation, heavy breathing, then it's an indication that something's going wrong. And you never want to challenge that. You don't want to risk injury. But if it's just that burning, if it's just you know, your heart's pounding, you're sucking wind, your muscles are on fire, it's temporary. And at that point, what you have to ask yourself is if the achievement of your goals long term is more important to you than the temporary reprieve from that discomfort. Are you willing to keep working through it? Because it's not harmful. Understanding that it's not harmful and it's temporary helps with that. In fact, uh, what people should do is embrace that when they get it. They should chase after that muscle burning. That's what they're trying to get to during the exercise. In fact, the better your form is, the sooner it will come on and the better your will, the longer you'll be able to push through it. You don't want to associate that with injury, though. That discomfort, that burning you're feeling is your body letting you know that this is a stressful activity. And that means that it's an effective stimulus. If it's sharp, if it's sudden, if it's in the joints, if you feel like a headache or something coming on, then or if you like start seeing spots floating in front of your eyes, then you want to stop. You don't want to push or risk for injury. But that muscle burn, you want to go after it. And when you start 
feeling that you want to continue to try and intensify and work through it, not try to run away from it. You know, go go like, toward uh, that, not away from it. It's like suffering consciously, putting yourself through the stress oh, yeah. on purpose and knowing why you're doing it. And Absolutely you'll know that yes. it's going to be over in a while. <laughs> Well, and this might sound a little little out there, but one of the things that I found helps with this a lot is regular meditation. People who meditate outside of the workouts tend to be able to maintain much better focus during and also the ability. And because you don't want to get your mind elsewhere, you want your mind on the muscles that you're working during the exercise. So you don't use it as a as a way to put your focus outside of your body or on something else. It needs to stay internal. But doing that helps with that focus considerably. Well, on your website, you mentioned something about being stoic during your exercises and not all this hooping and hollering and screaming and yelling while you're exercising. Can you get more into the stoicism of exercise? (laughs) Here's the thing. When you're exercising, it's expected that you're going to feel this severe burning and the associated discomfort. Nobody else needs to know. Nobody else is going to be surprised <laughs> by it. There's, it's, it's something that you know, you know what's going to happen going into it. Why, why shout? Why yell? Why make these noise? Uh, the reason people do that sort of stuff has absolutely nothing to do with how hard they're training. In fact, the better your form, the harder the exercise is. All the thrashing around and the noise making and the grunting and all this distracts yourself from that discomfort from that burning that you should be going towards so people do it partly as a distraction to themselves but the bigger reason that you see a lot of people doing this stuff in the gym is that it is attention getting behavior mm-hmm. all these histrionics people engage in banging weights the grunting the yelling is they might as well just look around the gym and say hey look at me hey look at me instead of doing all this other stuff, because that's exactly what they're doing. Um, If you go to a gym and you stand off to the side and just watch people for an hour, the behavior that you see is not much different than most mammals during mating season. A lot of it is, it is no different. The males are attempting to look bigger, you know, watch people walk around with their lats flared, they're flexing in the mirror, not to look at themselves, but watch. People flex in the mirror, and they're checking to see who else is looking. <laughs> and so you got the males trying to all puff themselves up and look bigger than they are and draw attention to themselves. The banging of weight plates and the grunting and groaning is basically the modern human mating call in that environment. And then you have women who go to the gym with more makeup on and brighter clothes than they usually wear to a club and they're barely touching the weights or they're they're somewhere preening themselves on a cardio machine, they're typically there also to draw attention to themselves. Now, on the plus side, if you go to a gym and you meet somebody at the gym, you have a better chance of meeting somebody who at least has an interest in being healthy and fit, which is a big plus over meeting people in bars or clubs. Uh, when I was in college, most of the women that I picked up, I picked up at different gyms. Um, one, the lighting is better. You can see what they really look like. And uh, two, if they're at the gym, 
again, you have at least at least they're showing an interest in, in health or fitness. But a lot of the people there, a lot of that behavior, all the noise and everything, it contributes nothing to the effectiveness of exercise. It distracts you from it. It distracts other people from it. When you're doing an exercise, regardless of how uncomfortable you are, there's no reason that you need to grunt or yell or scream or thrash about or do any of these things. You should look like a machine. You should be performing the movement as smoothly, as strictly as you can. You should be focusing on the muscles you're contracting. In fact, everything that you are thinking about should just be what's happening with your body in that space at that time. And the, you should be completely oblivious to everybody and everything else around you. Uh, it, there's no reason to scream. There's no reason to yell. Some people say, oh, you got you to grunt for the Balsalva maneuver. If you're lifting correctly, there is no place for that in an exercise. Um, there is a role for that in certain competitive lifts, which is a specific skill that is related to an exercise but very different. Uh, but there's no reason to be grunting, screaming, yelling, or anything. Uh, no physical exercise-related reason. It's all attention-getting and distracting behavior. Well, can we talk about um, recovery? Um, when I do a workout, I do get sore. What's, I guess everybody's different, but how long should you be sore, and is it, when you go back to work out again, should all traces of soreness be gone from your muscles before you even attempt to exercise again? No. Uh, soreness is subjective, and people can have soreness that lasts for days. Uh, mm -hmm. Sometimes it's relatively extreme. And other people, no matter how hard you push them, they barely get sore. And it really doesn't give you an objective uh, way of measuring whether or not you've fully recovered or not. Now, soreness can be an indication of which muscles are affected by an exercise uh, to a degree. Again, it does, it varies a lot. You're going to have some people who can barely get sore, some people who get really sore, some people who have certain muscles that get very sore and others that don't. It's, it's not a reliable way to determine this. If you want to know whether or not you're getting enough recovery time between workouts, uh, you need to look at how you're making progress in your workouts and in goal-specific measurements over time. If your goal is improvement in body composition, and of course, diet's going to play a role in that too, but if you're trying to increase your muscle mass, if you are increasing your muscle mass steadily, then you're allowing adequate recovery. If you're seeing little or no improvements in muscle mass, and if everything else is in order, you're training intensely, you're not overdoing it during the workouts, you're getting adequate sleep, you're eating well, then it may be an indication that you need more recovery time. And if you think that might be the case, you need to experiment with it. You need to increase your rest days, pay attention to how your body responds. And in fact, a lot of this should be looked at as a lifelong experiment. Again, the principles are identical. They're the same for everybody. These are universal principles that if you apply them to any person, it's going to improve them as much as they can physically be improved. But there is a lot of variability between individuals, and the only way to determine what is best for anybody requires keeping track, again, keeping track of your workouts and keeping track of how your body responds to it. If your goal is to become leaner, you need to pay attention to your body composition. If it's to build muscle, you need to pay attention to your measurements, how much muscle you're getting, what your strength is, how your strength is changing during your workouts. 
if your goal is to improve better in a specific physical activity, you need to make regular assessments of that activity and compare it over time based on what you're doing with your training. If you see that it improves faster when you're doing it one way, then you know that that is a step in the right direction. And so with recovery, you got to keep track of your goal-specific measurements. You got to keep track of your workouts. And if you're not making progress, change that. If the change causes an improvement in progress, then you're moving in the right direction. If not, change it a little further. And if it's still not, then it's an indication that there are other factors that you need to look at. Uh, and this, you, met, you asked earlier about whether people really need a trainer. Um, this is where having a trainer, if they know what they're doing, can be helpful, is helping people evaluate these changes and kind of dial all these things in so that you're basically coming up with a prescription that fits the individual. How many exercises? How often? Which exercises? Protocol, etc. What they should be eating? You know, it's it does vary a lot between individuals, but it's you know with recovery, there there's no way to just say, well, I'm still sore, I shouldn't work out yet. In fact, ironically, sometimes. The best thing to do if somebody has an extreme level of soreness that's incapacitating is to have them repeat the exercise. A lot of times that will alleviate the soreness. Now, you wouldn't want to do that frequently because if you're doing it too often, you end up overtraining. But if it's debilitating, if, and some people get really bad soreness from some exercises, and usually it's thighs or calves, a lot of times having them repeat the exercise that caused the soreness can help them to, to reduce some of that. Was it flush out like as excess lactic acid or something? What's the what's the science? Uh, you know what? I'm not even really sure, but it's not the lactic acid because your body will fix that relatively quickly. You're not going to still have that in the muscles a few days later. That's that's going to leave in your bloodstream. Some of it gets converted back to pyruvate in your mitochondria. Some of it goes to the liver and gets back, but you're not going to have it just sitting around in the muscles for that long. Mm-hmm. Uh, Drew, you had mentioned. Um, the this concept that you uh, maintaining proper form you bring yourself to a point where you can no longer continue the exercise and that's kind of your marker uh i was wondering what you think about body weight exercises uh can a beginner achieve that level of of uh i guess stress on the muscles just with body weight exercises or do they need external weights for that Um, you can do it with body weight exercises uh, but it is a lot more difficult Uh, here's the thing. You need to have enough resistance that you are able to achieve momentary muscle failure within a reasonable time frame. And some people are so heavy that their body weight is too much. They can barely do a rep if they can do one at all. For other people, their body weight is insufficient. That's not heavy enough if they do the exercises in a traditional fashion. Uh, but notice I said resistance is what you need, not weight. A lot of people don't understand that there's a significant difference between the two. Weight is related to the pull of gravity on the mass that you're attempting to move during the exercise, whether it's a, a, bar, a barbell or your body weight or whatever. Um, but the resistance is the combination of the weight and the lever and other factors. The resistance is the force you have to overcome to perform the exercise with the weight being used. 
And that resistance can be very, if you're doing a body weight exercise, most body weight exercises have different difficulty in different positions because of the change in leverage. For example, if you are doing a squat, when you are standing, when you're at the top of a squat, it's very easy. You could stand for hours. You go to a concert, you stand for two, three hours, you don't even think about it. You know, your feet might bug you a little bit depending on what you're standing on, but your legs aren't going to be that tired. You know, not if you're even in reasonably good condition. If your legs are tired after standing for two, three hours at a concert, then you are desperately in need of strength. Um, but if you were to squat down, and if you squat down properly, if you avoid letting the knees too far forward, you don't want to be sitting on your hamstrings. You want your your uh, thighs close to parallel, but you want your hips a little further back. If you squat down to that position properly, it's a very difficult position for a person to hold for a long period of time. Your body weight is exactly the same if you're standing completely upright or if you're squatting down. The difference in difficulty is the difference in the position. Now, sure. you can take advantage sure. of that difference and make an exercise easier or harder. If you wanted to make a squat harder, you would avoid the easiest part of the exercise at the top. You'd avoid the top third or so of the movement. If you wanted to make the exercise easier instead of harder, you would avoid the bottom half the third of the movement. Which is go to the gym and watch people squatting and watch people leg pressing, and they all do this. I shouldn't say all, but most people do this. Most people, when they squat, don't go as low as they should. When they leg press, a lot of people barely bend their knees. They're staying in the easier portion of the movement so that they can handle more weight because they don't understand that. Just It doesn't make a difference. A big weight and a little lever can be less effective than a much smaller weight and a longer lever. And then there's also the timing. If you were to squat and you went all the way down, all the way back up, and then you stood at the top and you rested for a few seconds between each repetition, it would be much easier than if you were to do it in a continuous fashion and if you were to reverse direction with no rest at the top. That's another thing you see people doing. Watch them do leg press, watch them do squats, and they'll stop for a little bit at lockout. So they're doing two things. They're manipulating the timing by spending more time where it's easiest, and they're manipulating the average lever by avoiding the most difficult portion of the exercise to reduce the resistance. Even though it's a heavy weight or a heavier weight than they could handle with proper form, the actual resistance isn't as high. Now, if you wanted to make it difficult, you can manipulate the timing by spending more at the bottom. If you were to take a barbell that you could normally squat for a good number of repetitions, and when you get to the bottom, instead of coming right back up, if you were to hold there for a few seconds at the bottom of each repetition and then slowly come back up instead of starting rapidly, then it would greatly reduce the number of repetitions you'd be able to perform. In a lot of cases, people, if they squat in a way that maximizes the resistance with the leverage and the timing, often would have to cut the weight way back. And yet it doesn't mean that the exercise is any easier. It's just that they are modifying the difficulty by changing the lever, changing the timing, instead of changing the weight. And in fact, right. this is a better way to do it because, again, a big weight and a small lever can have the same resistance as a smaller weight and a proportionally larger lever. 
but the bigger weight is going to place more compression on the spine. Um, I've, sure. I've heard a lot of people criticize the barbell squat saying that, oh, you know, people shouldn't squat because it's bad for their back or hips because you shouldn't have that big heavy weight on your back. Well, that's because they don't understand that you don't need as heavy a weight. In fact, this is going to sound uh, counterintuitive, but the goal of exercise isn't to move a heavy weight. The goal of exercise is to place as much demand on the muscles and then through the muscles, all the supporting system, pelvic system, cardiovascular system, etc. And the better your form, the more efficiently you use the weight, the harder the exercise will be, the less weight is required to accomplish the same thing. Now, you should use as much as you can in good form for a reasonable amount of time. I'm not saying people should go super light in their weights, but you shouldn't use a heavier weight than required to achieve momentary muscle failure in a reasonable time frame with good form. Because if you compromise other factors of resistance, if you try to make it easier by manipulating the leverage, like people do with squats, not going all the way down. If you try to make it easier by resting when you don't need to, um, you're not making, you're not, you're not fooling anybody who actually understands basic physics. You're again, it's like the grunting and groaning. It's like, look at all these plates. Look at me. Um, and in fact, it was there's a, a trainer in uh, Dubai, and I, I think he put it best. He said the sign of a mature trainee when they focus more on how well they lift than on how much they lift. Anyways, to get back to the body weight issue, though, a person can scale the difficulty of a body weight exercise so that it is as easy or as hard as necessary for their strength relative to their body weight by manipulating the lever, manipulating the timing. And that means that somebody who's very, very heavy and not very strong can make it easier so that it's challenging enough for where they are to be affected. Or somebody who is very strong can manipulate the, the lever and the timing to make it so that it's as hard as they need it to be. Now, here's where the problem is. If you're doing an exercise with a barbell or with a machine, as you get stronger, progression is very simple to increase the weight. If you're doing an exercise with your body weight, you have to change lever or timing or load distribution and you're trying to do this in a systematic way, it's a lot to keep track of. And whenever you make a change, you're changing the way you do the exercise a little bit. And eventually, for people who are very strong, you have to go from bilateral to unilateral versions of the exercise. Now, you asked if there was enough weight, if somebody needed external weight, and no, because I guarantee you, you go to a gym and you pick out the strongest 10 people you can find, and ask them to do one-arm chin-ups or ask them to do one-legged squats or one-arm push-ups in good form. Now, in good form. It's these things, for some people who are really light, they can do a lot of them if they do typical sloppy fast ones. But if you have them slow down and if you have them do it in a way where they're maximizing these other factors, the timing and the leverage for the sake of increasing difficulty – most of them won't be able to do it. You take the biggest, strongest guys in the gym and see how many of them can do one-arm chin-ups. 
Even if you take them and make them do chin-ups regularly, you know, two hands at a time, but have them do it very, very strictly, most of them are not going to, if you have them stay right around the mid part of the range of motion where the lever is the largest, and if you have them deliberately squeezing those muscles, if they avoid resting at the bottom especially, then it's going to be as hard as they need it to be. It's just, it's not as simple. And the problem, especially with leg exercises like squats, is when you start doing it unilaterally and it starts stretching out the duration of the workout a bit more, if people are trying to do these things efficiently, that's not always a good thing. You should always use the best tools available to you. And that can mean machines, it can mean free weights, or under some circumstances, it might mean body weight. And you should learn to perform body weight exercises correctly so that when you are in those circumstances, you don't have an excuse not to work out. But you should always use the best equipment you've got. So it's it's something that people should learn. They should know how to do correctly. And if somebody, people just like to do body weight exercises. It's they They like the challenge of it or they like not having to go to a gym or maybe they just want to go and work out on the beach or whatever and they don't want to obviously can't drag a bunch of equipment out so there might be reasons that people want to do that but um, if they want to do that if they are willing to learn how to manipulate those other factors of uh, resistance then they can make it as easy or as difficult as they need for their their current strength levels and their goals it's just it's a little bit more involved than just adding or removing plates on a barbell or, or moving a pin on a machine. Yeah. I have a, a two-part question, Drew. Is there an ideal time of day to work out, and is there any advantage or disadvantage to working out in a fasted state? Uh, best time of day to work out is when there are the least people in the gym, <laughs> Where, wherever that happens to be, because they, they, they're – they just get in the way or they're a distraction. Uh, no, seriously, though, I like to have people train in the morning if they can. Not too early uh, because if people who think that the, they're doing some favor or they're, they're showing how committed they are by waking up at 4 or 5 in the morning to work out, it's just stupid because sleep is extremely important. If you're compromising your sleep to train, it's just it, it's idiotic. Get enough rest. Because if you don't, you're not going to be able to put the same effort into your workout, and your body's not going to be able to recover from and adapt to it as effectively. Sleep is extremely important. You never never compromise sleep to get. If you don't have a good night's rest, you're better off waiting until you do before working out than trying to work out while you're tired. So not too early in the morning. Uh, but if you get it out of the way in the morning, it makes everything else you do for the rest of the day seem a lot easier. Now, obviously, it, it depends on people's schedules. It's not going to be practical for everybody to do that. Uh, problem if you do it later in the day, though, is the longer you wait, the more the possibility that something else is going to come up and get in the way. And sometimes you can say, no, you know, I'm going to work out. This is, you know, the priority. But, you know, if it's something with your job, if it's something with your family, that might not always be an option. I don't recommend working out fasted. Um, you're not going to be able to put the same level of effort into your workout. And here's here the problem with that is a lot of times when you hear people talking about fasted workouts, what they are thinking about is how being in that fasted state affects 
you know, fatty acids getting into the bloodstream for use during the workout because they're thinking about the workout as a calorie burning thing, which is also just completely backwards. Forget entirely the idea that exercise has anything to do with burning calories. You don't exercise to burn calories. In fact, you don't do anything to burn calories. No activity at all is worth doing for the sole purpose of burning calories because you don't burn enough for it to make any significant difference. Um, if you're doing a workout, you're going to burn some calories. If you're doing anything physically demanding, you're going to burn some calories, but it's not enough for that purpose. The reason for working out, for exercising, for, which again is specifically strength training, nothing else counts, is that you're stimulating improvements in all these factors of functional ability. If you have an increase in muscle mass, you're going to have a higher metabolic rate, partly because more tissue requires more energy to sustain, but also because there's a significant cost, a metabolic cost, you know, in terms of both protein and uh, calories to the recovery process. Your metabolic rate is going to be elevated because of all the materials and energy that has to go into repairing the damage done to the muscles on a microscopic level during the workout. In fact, people used to say, oh, you, you're going to burn 100 more calories or 50 more calories or whatever for every pound of muscle you gain, which is nonsense. If you gain a pound of muscle, depending on what you're doing with it, you might burn another you know, 10 calories or so per day. That's 7 to 14 is a number that's often given. The reason that there appears to be a much larger increase in metabolic rate with muscle gain is because when people strength train, there's a cost uh, in terms of calories and, again, protein afterwards for recovery. But you don't do it to burn calories. You do it for all the other things, and the calorie burning is just a, a nice bonus. Um, if you are fasted, though, you're not going to be able to put the same level of effort into your workout, and you're not going to get as much out of it. I don't want to go too much on the, on the calorie burning thing right now, but again, forget the idea that exercise is for burning calories. You know, go out and do things, be physical, because you know there is enjoyment to be had in recreational activities, in socializing, and having something that you do physically on a regular basis provides both motivation for strength training and another tool for evaluation. If for example, say you like to cycle or you like to uh, play basketball or football or whatever. If you do that, it's one more reason, one more thing to motivate you during your workouts because you know the stronger and the better condition you get, the better you'll be able to do these things and the more you're going to enjoy them. Which comes back to the whole idea of exercise being essential to having as fulfilling a life as possible. But also, the better you are performing in these activities, it will let you know that you're doing things right during your workout. So I'm not saying people shouldn't go out and do things and be active. They absolutely should. But they shouldn't do these things just to burn calories, and they should not confuse them with exercise. Um, I'm sorry, there was a second part. Oh, that was the second part, the time and the, uh, the fast. Yeah, don't sacrifice sleep to work out. Work out in the morning if you can. If not, whenever there's the least people in the gym or when it's convenient for you and make sure you've got something to eat at least about three hours or so before the workout. If not, just have a small snack with a little bit of protein and carbohydrate going into it. Well, as far as, you know, another thing that I've heard from the paleo community, uh, as far as like a fasted workout goes is uh, that there's supposed to be a higher release of human growth hormone 
uh, as a result. Um, but it sounds like from from what you're saying that it's you know okay, so maybe there is uh, a slight bump uh, in the uh, growth hormone release caused or you know as a result of exercise, but uh, you wouldn't be able to do as much. Um, yeah, you got to look at the net. There are you got to be very careful because a lot of time when you're talking about studies, because a lot of times the studies will look at an individual factor that may point to something else. But ultimately, what you're looking at is how do all of these factors combine? What is the net effect? Mm-hmm. And you might, you might, and I'm skeptical of some of these things, but mm-hmm. uh, you might have a little more growth hormone. But if the net effect, if it also compromises your workout intensity, the net effect might be less results over time. Also, yeah. a lot yeah. of times when they're do when they're talking about this stuff, they're looking at a specific thing. For example, there are some studies that look at this versus that for fat loss. But in the long run, you don't just want to lose fat. You want to improve body composition, which mm-hmm. means both decreasing fat and increasing or at least maintaining muscle mass once you get to a certain point. And if you look at just that one factor, the fat loss, and you don't look at how it might also affect your muscle gain or maintenance over time, then, yeah, maybe something, and this is, I'm not saying anything specific, this is a hypothetical, but maybe doing something one way would be a little bit more effective for fat loss, but if in the long run it's also less effective for increasing muscle mass, then the net effect would be worse than using an approach that might be slightly slower for fat loss, mm-hmm. but allows you more you know, muscle gain. So it's, it's really important that people look at the big picture, which again, isn't even just the physical results. You have to consider where exercise fits overall in your lifestyle. And quite frankly, you know, while it is one of the most important things people can do, you do hit a point of diminishing returns above some volume and frequency. And so people need to ask, you know, at what point is it enough? Most people need to have good results. They need to get stronger. And like I mentioned earlier, most untrained people, including most people who think they're exercising, but they're really not exercising, they're doing all these other things, they are weaklings compared to what their potential is. And for them to even get 75% of the way there would be great. And for most people, maybe that's what fits in their lifestyle. Now, if you are an athlete, if you are somebody whose passion is a particular physical activity that is affected by your physical fitness, actually any, any physical activity is going to be, then the additional time getting to the point where You don't want to go past the point where you're not getting any additional returns, but getting to that optimum point, you know, might be worth the little bit of extra time for you. But uh, for other people, maybe just, and this is where a lot of the once weekly, really brief workouts come in. For most people doing one hard workout a week, if they're covering all the major muscle groups, is going to produce a significant rate of progress. And eventually, they're going to get pretty strong and pretty well-conditioned doing that. It's not going to be optimal for everybody. But for most people, it's not necessary. You don't have to do a lot of exercise. You don't have to do it very often 
if you want to be in good shape. You just have to do it very hard and you have to make sure that your sleep and your diet and all the other stuff is in order. If you want the best possible results, if you want to be as strong, as physically conditioned as you can possibly be, you still don't have to do a lot and you don't have to do it very often, but you might need to do it a little bit more than that, depending on your recovery and your, you know, how much exercise that you can tolerate at any particular time. So it's, uh, well, I got I got off uh, off track there. Well, that actually but, was that was actually kind of addressing the next question that I had, which was for the average person, you know, how would they, you know, what would the just kind of like if somebody's just starting out, uh, what would be kind of like your recommendation for for where should they start and you know how should they, well, uh, you know, kind of go forward and what should they look at? I would start most people out training their full body three times a week. Uh, more than that tends to be too much for most people. And even for people who can handle and recover from that, it's not necessary. Most people beyond that point are not going to get much better results. And usually anybody who's training more than that is doing so for psychological rather than physical reasons or social. They just want to be in the gym looking at people and being looked at. Um, from a physical standpoint, though, most people don't need more than three full body workouts per week. And like I mentioned earlier, there's an inverse relationship between how hard you train and how much you can do and how often. I'd like to have people do more at first because I don't want them training hard initially. When a person is starting out, I want them to focus on how well they're doing the exercises, learning to do things right, and then gradually increasing the loads gradually increasing their effort, when they get to the point where they're regularly reaching momentary muscle failure on most of their exercises, then I would start looking at how they're progressing and possibly cutting back on the volume of the workouts or adding rest days in between, depending on how much effort they're able to put into all their exercises and depending on how they're recovering. You have to do enough exercises to hit all your major muscle groups. It doesn't all have to be in the same workout, though. You can spread it out over a few uh, workouts. In fact, as you do so, you should also have a little bit of variety in some of the movement. But um, beyond that point, it really comes down to the individual. You look at, are they recovering? You know, how much effort are they, getting, are they putting into each of the exercises? And then you adjust it based on that. Now, if a person wanted to just get in shape, so to speak, they don't need to do a lot. They could cut back to once a week if that worked for their schedule and still get good results doing that. It might not be the best possible to them, depending on their genetics, but good. But you do have some people, and they're, these people are about as uncommon as the people who are able to train very high volume frequently and adapt. But you do have some people who actually need that much rest of the or in some cases even more, and can't do a lot of exercise all at once. So again, it's it's important, and this is why I'm hesitant to say everybody should do this. Remember, I said mm -hmm. that that three yeah. times a week full body is a starting point. Mm -hmm. It always has to be adjusted based on individual response. But there are going to be some people who need more recovery, who can't handle as many workouts. But again, that's that seems to be a good starting point for most people. And then to back off. And I just said somebody commented about uh, branch chain amino acids in the chat. Waste the money. If you're mm -hmm. eating enough protein on a daily basis, you don't need any branch chain amino acids. It's, you're, you're covered if you're already getting enough protein in your diet. It's a waste of money. 
Well, one right, of our chatters yeah, most supplements, uh, there, there are some that are beneficial, but most of them, the, the only thing that they're going to do is drain your wallet. You really don't need them. Well, one of our other chatters had a question about warming up before weight training with cardiovascular exercise, like for five or 10 minutes. Is that necessary? Not at all. Just jump right into the um, weight training. In most cases, if a person does not have an injury that causes discomfort during a particular exercise, you don't need to do any kind of warm up. If you are performing a very, you know, high force, high speed athletic activity where you're jumping right into it, then you would want to warm up. But if you're doing an exercise in proper form and you have normal, healthy joints, then everything that would normally occur during the warm up it increased you know, synovial fluid, lubricating joints, increased blood flow to the muscles. All that is going to happen within the first few reps. An extra warm-up, it's just a waste of time and energy. Um, I've been doing uh, training for geez, almost a quarter century now, and I almost never have anybody warm up. And this includes some really old people. I'm talking 80s. And I have never in all this time had a person injured as a result of anything they did during a workout. Now, if somebody has a joint issue that causes discomfort during an exercise, then it'll sometimes do a warm-up prior to the exercise just to prep the joint so that they are able to do the exercise with less discomfort. So there are exceptions. There are cases where some people would want to do that, but for the majority of people, it's it's not necessary at all. If you are using correct form and if you don't have any pre-existing injuries that you shouldn't be exercising with, you're not going to get hurt doing the exercises. And if your form is bad, then it doesn't matter what warm-up you do. If your form is bad enough, you're probably going to injure yourself anyways. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so what about... What about stretching afterwards? No, you don't really need it. There's, there's, uh, again, this is something that's situational. If you are doing the exercises through a full range of motion, you are going to improve flexibility along with strength. And for most people, additional stretching is not necessary. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't hurt to do it afterwards, but uh, the research is kind of mixed. Some studies so, show that there's a slight benefit to stretching after a workout, um, but most of it doesn't show that it makes any significant difference in strength. Um, if you were going to stretch, though, most people stretch completely wrong. Um, and you'd probably better, oh, this, this is a whole nother, if you guys want to talk stretching sometime, we could literally talk about this for another full hour. Um, I'm going to give you the super short version, though. Stretching is not about lengthening the muscles. And that's what most people are trying to do. They're trying to force a stretch. Stretching is about retraining your nervous system to allow the muscle to extend further. I guarantee if you all go and get your flexibility tested and then get really, really drunk and then test it again right afterwards, your flexibility <laughs> will have improved tremendously. You haven't done anything to physically lengthen your muscles, but that nervous inhibition is going to allow a little more extensibility. 
And the best way to stretch is not one that's really, you know, trying to go for a deep stretch in the muscle, but one that retrains the muscles so that they are allowing more extensive, again, retraining your nervous system to allow the muscle to extend a little further before it starts to tighten. Um, but uh, yeah, well, that we, we should probably talk about that. Another, that's a whole nother thing. There are so many, there's at least as many myths around stretching and how it should be done as there is about exercise and, and strength training. Yeah, there's a lot more technical questions that I wanted to get into, but we're, we're running a little... <laughs> Uh, well, can I throw one question in before we before we cut away? We just I've had a got question time. earlier. I've got as much time as you guys have, so okay. fire away. Well, there was a question earlier on in the chat, actually, where one person was asking if there's any differences between how men and women would approach this type of exercise. No, not really. Not. Uh, if because exercise is about muscle and joint function, and the similarities between men and women in terms of general muscle and joint function are small enough that they can be ignored for the most part. There are some very specific things that vary. Um, for example, some minor things about how you might perform an exercise that involves elbow or knee flexion with positioning because the valgus of the elbows and knees, the angle when viewed from the front in anatomical position varies a little bit. Um, so, there, there are some tiny little things that have to be considered with uh, differences in the skeletal structure. These are not major differences. Uh, the biggest differences in men and women's training is not how the exercises should be performed or the principles in terms of their volume and frequency, but usually which exercises they might want based on their particular goals. Uh, you do have to consider uh, there's if, if a woman is pregnant, there are some hormonal changes that affect connective tissue strength and flexibility that you have to be you know, careful about certain exercises with that. Um, with women, you have to be careful about when you measure because at different times in their menstrual cycle, they're going to have different levels of fluid retention. And so you should always weigh, if you're looking at body composition changes, you should always weigh and do other measurements at the same time in the cycle because so, otherwise it's going to be all over the place. Um, but from a strength tra training standpoint, it's pretty much going to be the same. There, you, don't, you don't have to have completely wildly different you know, ways of training men and women. Something that I don't think we mentioned just yet was, you know, in one of the other questions you were explaining about, um, you know, performing uh, certain repetitions. Um, I don't think we talked about the cadence. Um, you know, because if you go to a gym, you'll just see people pumping out as many as they can as quickly as they can, which is, you know, really, really bad because it takes all it uses a lot of momentum and takes away uh, from the actual force requirement um, from the muscle. So what would what would be, you know, a, a good kind of uh, starting point that you could play with, um, you know, to just kind of see what works best for you in that respect? Recently, I've dropped cadence entirely. I've dropped cadence, oh, really? I've dropped repetition count, everything. Um, the problem with most people in the gym, and the reason that they're lifting so quickly, is they have a completely backwards mentality about their workouts. They are concentrating on what they're doing to the weight or what they're doing to the machine. You want to forget all that. When you're doing an exercise, it is not about what you're doing to the weight with your muscles. It's about what you are doing to your muscles with the weight. 
And it's not about the amount of times you make a weight go up and down. It's about the demand that you create in the muscles, the tension, the metabolic stress, and that microtrauma, the microscopic tears in the muscle fibers. All of that benefits from moving slowly. So you definitely don't want to throw the weights up and down. You want to move. In fact, you want to move as slowly as you can move smoothly. There is a thing called the force velocity curve, which shows that at different concentric contraction speeds, depending on how quickly the muscle is shortening, it can produce different levels of force. The slower you attempt to lift the weight, the higher the force the muscle can produce. And it will actually it'll allow you to use a heavier weight for the same amount of time. For example, if you were to lift a weight for one minute, if you, could, you, if you did 10 repetitions going up in three and down in three, you would not be able to use as much weight as you could if you did three repetitions going up in 10 and down in 10. The slower you're moving, especially during the concentric lifting phase, the more tension your muscle is capable of producing and the, the larger the weight or the, the load you're able to handle for the same time frame, assuming that everything else is equal. And this is important because there's a difference between your positive, your lifting, and then your negative, your lowering strength. And the lowering is where most of that microtrauma is occurring. And regardless of the speed that you lift, your lowering speed is always going to be, or sorry, your lowering strength is always going to be much higher. The faster you attempt to lift a weight, again, all else being equal, assuming that form is correct, usually the faster you go, the worse your form is. Part of the reason people use fast movements, but the faster you attempt to lift the weight, the less weight you're going to be able to lift, all else being equal. So the more underloaded you're going to be during that negative, which is, again, the most important part where microtrauma is, microscopic tears are concerned. For example, um, suppose that if you lift, and based on some old Nautilus research, the, the reason that people think that you're 40% stronger during the negative is because the testing that this number came from used a four-second concentric on an exercise with a specific range of motion. If you change the range, you change the time, you change any of that, then that ratio, that difference changes. But we'll use that as an example. Suppose that if you lift a weight in four seconds, um, then you're going to be 40% stronger lowering it in about the same amount of time. But, so if you used 100 pounds to lift, then you could lower 140. And that would mean that you would have that much of a gap. You would be using 40% or so less weight than you could have lowering. But let's say you slow your speed way down. Then instead of being limited by, let's say instead of lifting 100, maybe you can lift 120 or so then you're not as underloaded during the negative. Now, in terms of a specific cadence, part of the reason that uh, for so long I've recommended about a four-second positive and negative is because it was a good average for different exercises. It wasn't so long that when you're doing you know, exercises like calf raise or shrugs, so there's really short range of motion, that you were going you know, too slowly. But it wasn't so short that you were going too fast during longer exercises like pullovers, back uh, extension, whatnot. It was just a good average. But the problem with that is that while it makes for more consistent performance, 
which is helpful for comparing performance on a workout to workout basis. For a lot of people, when you start counting cadence, it distracts you. And especially if you're counting cadence and trying to count your repetitions, it distracts you from focusing on the exercise. You're compromising your focus on the movement and the muscles for the sake of concentrating on measuring. Measuring is important, but doing the exercise as well as possible is more important than being able to measure it. And some people will do better with a little slower speeds or a little faster in some movement, depending on their motor ability, depending on their limb length, depending on the exercise, a lot of other factors. So what I would recommend for people is to move as slowly as they can smoothly. Beyond some point, if you're going too slowly, some people will end up performing a segmented movement. They have difficulty uh, with perception of position and movement below some speed where instead of being a smooth, continuous movement, it becomes a series of short starts and stops. Um, for most people, most exercise, this seems to happen once you start slowing down towards taking more than you know, 15 seconds or so, to, which is a long time to be doing it. But um, so for most people, most exercise, if I had to put a time on it, I'd say not faster than five, not slower than, uh, than um, 15. And I say five instead of four here because most people, most people, if you tell them, four seconds, they'll go two seconds. Most people have have no concept of how long a second is. Uh, the only people that I've ever trained that have gotten it right, right off the bat without practice have been musicians because they typically, you know, they have a better feel for cadence. So, but yeah, forget, forget the time, the specific time that when you're doing the exercise, get a stopwatch, start the stopwatch, put it somewhere you can see it. On an even multiple of five, start the exercise and then forget about cadence, forget about the reps. Focus on intensely contracting the target muscles. Focus on reversing direction smoothly. Don't swing, bounce, jerk, yank, or do any kind of quick or sudden movement. You want to look like somebody doing Tai Chi in slow motion. You want to be that smooth. As you're doing the exercise, chase after that burn in the muscle. The more you feel it, the harder you want to contract. Don't grunt, scream, groan. Don't thrash around. You, know, you want to keep your head and neck still. You want to keep your face relaxed. All of your focus needs to be on what you're doing with your muscles and just on moving slowly. Take your time lowering the weight. Be cautious to not drop it as you approach the start point. When you get to a point where you can no longer move the weight in correct form, don't cheat, don't sacrifice your form, don't start swinging, don't start changing your body position to gain leverage. Just focus on more intense contraction. If attempting to contract even more intensely doesn't do it, after a few seconds, look at the stopwatch, make a note of the time, and then don't set the weight down right away. If you fail at some point, in the range of motion above the start point, then just try to lower it as slowly as you can. You don't get a count all that time afterwards. That's why I want to check that stopwatch first, but then just lower the weight as slowly as you can. Subtract however many seconds it took you after starting the stopwatch to do the exercise and then write that down. So like if you're going to do chin-ups, you start the stopwatch, you put it on the ground, you get your grip, you gradually Carefully transfer your weight from your legs to your hands. You look at the stopwatch and note the start time. You begin the exercise. Let's say you start after five seconds. 
You reach momentary muscle failure, you glance at it. Let's say it says, you know, 55. Keep contracting for a few seconds. If you can't go, then slowly lower yourself, and then you write down 50 seconds. But uh, I would forget cadence, forget reps. Move as slow as you can. Focus on contraction, on the contraction of the target muscles and chasing the burn, and then just keep track of time. It gets rid of all sorts of distractions. You don't want to be thinking about anything else during the exercise other than what is happening at the immediate moment. You don't want to think about the rep you just did. You don't want to think about where you are or how long it's been or what you're going to do next. Just focus on that particular moment on contracting the target muscles as intensely as possible. On your website, you said that one of the most important tools that you can have while you're working out is a clipboard and pencil so you can keep notes. What exactly are you keeping notes of, and is this entirely necessary if you don't have... It's, it's absolutely necessary. Okay. It's, it's If you want, because, again, there's no single program that works best for everybody. There are principles that are universal that apply to every single person. And the best program for an individual is going to depend on how, basically how their body responds to exercise. And to be able to determine that response, you need to keep track so that you can compare. It's like performing an experiment. Mm -hmm. If you were going to do a study, you would have to keep track of all your data. You'd have to perform measurements. When you're doing your workout, the experiment is, you know, seeing how your body responds to a specific application of those principles. If you are not making progress, then you change a variable. And then you continue to record what you're doing and how your body responds so that you can look back and say, okay, when I was doing this, I wasn't progressing as quickly, but I made this change and then I started getting stronger faster. Or if you're looking at, you know, measuring body composition, anything, the measurements are important because to be able to fine tune the application of the principles, you have to keep track of how your body is responding the changes in those applications or in the variables. Mm -hmm. So the workout chart, minimally, every time you work out, you should write down the date. And for each exercise, and usually I'll have people do, you know, just a couple workouts that they might rotate between. So you're not changing every single time. You want to have some consistency so that when you're looking back, you know, you, you don't want to change too many variables. So, for each workout, you record the date the workout was performed, and for each exercise, you would record the amount of resistance used, or load in this case, you know, the weight, and how long the exercise, or how long it took you to achieve momentary muscle failure, what your time under load was. And uh, then, you know, anytime you can do more than you know, a certain amount, and I like to start people with 30 to 90 seconds, but then I adjust it based on how their body responds. And this is another variable people might experiment with. And whenever you get a certain amount of time, the next time you do the exercise, you increase it a little bit. Um, that's the minimum. When the exercise or when the workout was performed and the load and the time for each exercise. If you change the order of exercises, you should also make a note. Put the order, write down the numbers in the upper right corner of the load and time box on the chart. Some people will record the start and end time so they can compare their total work to rest time and look at the density or the work-rest ratio of the workout. 
Uh, some people also record their average heart rate, their peak heart rate, and one-minute heart rate recovery, which can be interesting. Because when you see that that average, you know, that heart rate recovery especially is going down, you'll see that people are recovering faster and faster. Uh, so there's the data that you would keep track of would depend on your specific goals and what you're trying to improve. But minimally, you would, on every time you work out, the date and the load and time for each exercise. If your goal is to improve your muscular strength, your measurements are right there. If your goal is also improvements in body composition, you should periodically check your weight and check your body fat percentage. Um, if you're trying to improve your skill in some other activity, if it's like running or, an, or doing an obstacle course or whatever, you would periodically do assessments of your ability to perform that and take appropriate measurements depending on what the activity is. Like, uh, total time if you're doing an obstacle course, as well as your subjective perception of how you are feeling while you're doing it. And that can also be valuable for workouts. Actually, if people are training at different times of day, they want to find out what works better for them. Sometimes it's writing down little notes at the end of the workout. Okay, this is how I felt after doing this. Uh, the more information that you keep track of relative to your goals, the more useful your workout charts or journal is going to be in fine-tuning the application of those principles to your body and your goals. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's absolutely important. That's one of the things that is just drives me. Not, I'll go into a gym and I'll see all these people working out and not a single one of them keeps track of anything that they do. And it's just stupid. It would be akin to a researcher performing an experiment but never bothering to measure anything and just say, well, I'll remember it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it doesn't work as well. And you have some sample worksheets on your webpage, right? Yeah, I need to update those soon. I need to, uh, there was a problem with printing some of them where it does like a double thing, but I'll probably do that sometime within the next uh, couple of weeks. They'll, it, it'll all be on the same page, though, if somebody wants to go and look at that. Okay, but guys, all you need is a notebook, notebook and a pencil uh, or graph paper, or um, some people even use just a spreadsheet program to keep track of it. Guys, do you have any further questions for Drew? Yep, sounds no, like we're good. good. It's been great. Well, for our, our last question, one of our chatters uh, wants to know about breathing. Do you have any specific recommendations for how you should breathe while you're exercising? Yeah, don't stop. <laughs> that's, that's the main thing. Um, when you're when you're doing an exercise, a lot of people say, oh, you should exhale while lifting and inhale while lowering, which is, is nonsense. If you are moving slowly enough and you're training hard enough, you can't match the two. Um, if you're really working hard, you might be taking as many as 30 breaths per minute, and you shouldn't be moving so fast that you're doing that many reps per minute. So if you're going very slowly, you might... You might take 10 breaths, you know, in the time that you complete one repetition. What a person should do is just let their mouth hang open. And you don't want to try and inhale through your nose and out through your mouth or anything like that. Just let your mouth hang open and breathe as relaxed as naturally as possible. You don't want to try to time your breathing to your reps. You definitely don't want to hold your breath and perform what's called a Valsalva maneuver where you deliberately you know, close off your glottis and tense up 
the trunk muscles to increase pressure in the abdomen and thorax. That is a legitimate technique in certain competitive lifts. It has its place, but during exercise, which is different than the skill of a competitive lift, you would not want to do that. You just want to breathe as relaxed, as naturally as possible. Uh, Some people tend to hold their breath when they start a pushing movement or they hold their breath when they're squeezing at the end of a pulling movement. And if you catch yourself doing this, you want to anticipate it on the next rep and almost try to over-breathe going into that position and think breathing makes it go. It helps mm-hmm. with some people, but definitely you don't want to hold your breath. You don't want to perform a solid maneuver. You don't want to try and limit the way you're breathing, and you don't want to try and, and uh, do anything where you're timing it to the repetitions, just as relaxed as naturally as possible. Um, and with this, um, it does help to have some water or something around to drink because if you're training hard enough and you're breathing through the mouth correctly and you're breathing pretty heavy, especially if you're in a colder environment, which is better uh, for exercise, uh, you might get a little bit of a dry throat. Uh, just be careful that you don't set your water bottle somewhere where somebody else is going to knock it over or you trip over it or anything like that. Uh, it does help to have something to drink so that your throat doesn't dry out if you're breathing correctly. Okay. Well, sounds like we have reached the end of our show. I want to thank you so much, Drew Bay, for coming on to the Health and Wellness Show. Uh, your website, yeah, your website is bay.com. That's b-a-y-e dot com. That's where people can go and read all of your articles that you've posted, a lot of your writings, and they can also find links to order your books. Are your books also available on Amazon? Uh, no. Um, I, everything is through the website, uh, without going into it too much, Amazon tends to screw over authors. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks so much. You shared a lot of information with us today and it actually makes me feel inspired to <laughs> work well, out. We've, we've just scratched the surface. Yeah. Maybe you can come on in, in the future for a future show. We can do some follow-up and some more in-depth on some certain topics on high-intensity training. But thanks again for coming on. Uh, I'd like to thank our listeners and our chatters and my co-hosts. And make sure you tune in to the Truth Perspective or Behind the Headlines on Sunday. So thanks for listening in, everybody, and have a good weekend. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 